Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, how's it going out there? Welcome to the show. This is week eight, no, episode eight of season four. This is our infamous coronavirus lockdown season coming to you weekly from the Hen House in Nashville, Tennessee. So glad you could join me and thanks so much for your support and um, reaching out and saying hello and calling in and emailing and doing all that stuff. It, it really means a lot to hear from people. This week, we are featuring my interview with Sue Foley, and she is a killer guitar player and singer who many of you know. Uh, she is Canadian, but she's been spending a good chunk of her career in sort of two stages in Austin, Texas, and she's very well known around that area as well. But uh, she is a Canadian, and so we got to talk about all that stuff to do with being a musician in Canada, moving to the States. Our episode today is brought to you by our good pals at Union Tube and Transistor, making awesome pedals out of Vancouver. And we have a new sponsor this week, Black Mountain Picks, also out of Vancouver. And I didn't know that, actually. I bought me, uh, I bought myself a couple of guitar picks by Black Mountain because they make these spring-loaded thumb picks that are kind of meant to bridge the gap between a thumb pick and a flat pick. And I thought it was really interesting. And the envelope arrived on my doorstep. And lo and behold, it was from Vancouver, Canada. Now we have two contests running this week. First, the Union Tube and Transistor pedal giveaway is going to happen next week. That's the one. Next week, I'm going to give away a bean counter pedal from Union Tube and Transistor. And bean counter is, is their sort of 
slightly scaled down, aesthetically scaled down version of all their great pedals. Sonically, they're identical to the full versions. So you get to choose which pedal you want if you win the prize. And I will be announcing that next week. And the other um, contest is from our new friends at Black Mountain Picks. And over the next two weeks, I will give away two of these very intriguing spring-loaded thumb picks each show. So all you have to do to be entered for both of these things is to call into the show and leave a message. And I will put your message on air. And the idea is to talk a little bit about what you've been up to during this time, giving some um, creative suggestions or how the lockdown has affected you or your life as a musician or as a music fan, and maybe some musical suggestions as well. Just give me a shout at 615-375-6318. Nobody will answer that phone. It is a message only, and you can leave a message there. I will hopefully play your message on the show the next week. And if you leave a message there, you will be entered to win a Union Tube and Transistor pedal or a pair of Black Mountain picks. So go ahead and do that, or you can just record your message onto your phone and email it to me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. But if you want to call in, the number is 615-375-6318 and leave a message there. All right, uh, we have a new website up and running, which is at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Go have a look over there, and there's all kinds of information and all the episodes are available as well as some cool t-shirts and whatnot so go check that out and uh, we are of course on facebook and instagram and please follow us there and spread the word where you can all that stuff really helps so as usual during this season i'm going to be talking a little bit off the top and inviting some callers and reading some uh, comments and feedback from listeners which are all greatly appreciated but it does mean some blabbing off the top and if you're not into that crap then just fast forward on to about 15, 16 minutes in, and that's where the interview is going to start. So as you know, I keep this show ad-free throughout. There's a few sponsors off the top, but we do keep it ad-free and it is listener supported. And if you are in a position where you enjoy the show and you can help out financially, I would greatly appreciate that. And you can do that in a couple of ways. Um, Head over to the brand spanking new website at Makers and Shakers podcast. Dot com And there is a donate button up in the top right. You can make a one-time donation or you can sign up for a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And that's really helpful. And I did receive a contribution this week from Christine Bielkowski. And so thank you to Christine. It's greatly appreciated. All right, music recommendations. I've been making them. I don't know if you've been listening to them, but I'm going to make them anyway. You can listen to them if you want. Uh, I generally recommend something old and something new. So something old. I have been listening to a couple of old records a lot this week, and I recommend that you check them out. First of all, Bobby Charles. Do you guys know Bobby Charles? He's kind of under the radar. He's a Louisiana songwriter, performer that was making records in the 70s, made some great records with um, some of the guys from the band up in that Bearsville, New York, upstate New York scene uh, with Levon and Rick Danko and all those folks. And Bobby Charles, man, he has a self-titled record. It's just called Bobby Charles. It's so damn good. I just keep listening to that record and the songs are so happening and everything's good about it. So check that out. And um, another one other oldie I'm going to tell you about, but probably everybody knows about this record, but I've been listening to it a lot this week, is Milestones by Miles Davis, which for me, that was, a, that was my gateway to Miles Davis when I was a kid. I don't know why, but I ended up buying... Milestones, which is 
which is like the same band as Kind of Blue. It's like all that, it's that classic band with Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane and Paul Chambers, Philly Joe Jones, all those guys. And they made Kind of Blue, which is the one that gets all the press for being like the biggest selling jazz album of all time or whatever. But for me, uh, Milestones is the one. I don't know. I just, I, I love that record sonically and performance wise. It kicks ass. So I, those are the two oldies I've been listening to this week. And, um, a new one, uh, I've been listening to the Jason Isbell record. Uh, he has a brand new record out called Reunions. Uh, his records usually, like, they grow on me after a while. It takes me a few listens to, to uh, dig in, which I think is a good sign of a, of a good, lasting record. And this one, same deal. It's like, at, at first listen, I wasn't totally sure, but I've checked it out a few times. And, you know, that dude can really write a song. I'm going to tell you about that right now. He's a damn good songwriter, and there's some great songs on this new record and he's also a mean guitar player and actually next week i've got somebody on the show who is in his band and we'll be talking about this record and other stuff like that next week so yeah when you call in leave leave some music recommendations of your own i'd love to hear what you guys are listening to out there so here in tennessee we're you know two months into this craziness and and things are opening up around here it's making me a little crazy because I don't know if we're ready for that or not. It seems like the COVID stuff is increasing while things are opening, and it just kind of makes me nervous. I wish everyone would just chill out for a little while and just keep this thing going for a few more weeks and see if we can get rid of it altogether. But what do I know? So anyway, things are opening up all over the place. And, you know, I, I would love to hear, I, you know, I've been hearing from a lot of musicians and music fans. I would love to hear from somebody involved in a music venue. I don't know if there's anyone out there that listens that's a, a music venue person, but uh, I'm just, you know, I'm terrified for that industry. Uh, you know, I don't know when we're going to go back to playing gigs. I, everything in 2020 is canceled for me. Um, I do have some friends that are holding on to a glimmer of hope of playing again in the fall and doing some touring and shows, which certainly technically could happen. But I, th you know, as far as I, I can tell, the audiences just aren't really ready to come out. So I feel like most stuff is just going to shut down in 2020. And that makes me pretty afraid for venues. Like, I, I don't know how venues can possibly survive, you know, paying rent and, doing that whole thing. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like for them when things reopen. It's got to be gradual and it's got to be kind of a crazy, you know, like I'm just picturing playing in some theater or something and somebody sneezes and just like 500 people go running for the door. <laughs> like I just, I can't really picture how this is all going to work. And I just hope the venues can pull through. You know, there's so many great venues here in Nashville. And, you know, of course, like I, I tour all over the place with different acts. And, and you know, I get to see all these great venues that have been around forever. And I'm just afraid for what what the future holds for, for that scene. So I would love to hear from somebody if, if, if there's some listeners out there that have some inside scoop on what's going on with venues mentality-wise and thoughts on the reopening process. So this week for me has been like another COVID week where I barely left the house, gone for a couple walks. I basically don't put shoes on anymore unless I'm going to play pedal steel. That's like my, my uh, big activity for the day is putting on my shoes to play pedal steel. Uh, if I'm not playing pedal steel, I don't wear shoes anymore, it seems like. 
Do you guys find that? But I've been doing this thing with a couple of friends, one from Toronto and one from Vancouver, and we're doing this thing called the Hen House Express, where we take somebody's song and we all record on it remotely, and um, then I mix it here in Nashville, and we get it done super fast and cheap, and uh, it's working out well. It's keeping us busy and and uh, creative, and we're getting to connect with a lot of new people and work on their cool songs and uh, it's been a great thing so that's called the hen house express and if you're a songwriter or performer and you want to get in on that act it's a great way to get a fully produced recording of your songs that you're writing and um, just reach out drop me a line steve at the henhousestudio.com all right let's get on with the show sue foley she's a kick-ass guitar player she plays a mean pink paisley telly she plays with a thumb pick like i do that's cool too thumb pick doesn't scream out blues to a lot of people, but um, it works for Sue, and that's awesome. And uh, she came up in the Ottawa blues scene and moved to Austin and signed a deal with Antone's Records back in the day when Clifford Antone was being an awesome, crazy maniac of the blues down there. And uh, just went through the whole thing and made some great records over the years. She eventually moved back to Ottawa to, to raise her her son. And um, over the last few years, she's put out a great new record called The Ice Queen. And she moved back to Austin, so she's been there for a few years again. And the new album's killer. It's got a bunch of, of, of new songs. I guess it's actually not that new. It's probably a year and a half old at this point, but it's her most recent one. You'll hear about what she has brewing uh, for the future as well. That's a killer record and has some great guests on it. Billy Gibbons is on it and Jimmy Vaughn and Charlie Sexton. So uh, go check out The Ice Queen and Sue's website at suefoley.com. We'll give you info on her and her, well, tours, I guess, when they start happening again (laughs) and uh, so go check that out and let's go to my conversation with sue foley hey sue how you doing steve i'm good well thanks for including me and uh i was looking at your stuff you've talked to some great players man it's cool there's a few good ones yeah i'm kind of curious you know i've been doing a bunch of these interviews i've sort of ramped the show up to a weekly thing from a monthly thing during all this lockdown. And I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm kind of curious what people are, are doing, you know, like uh, whether you're, whether you're finding some artistic time or if you're just sort of avoiding that or what, it seems to be a real mixed bag with people, but I'm curious. Yeah. A little bit of both, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, I could see where there's sort of a malaise that set in, like we're not, I don't feel super creative. You know, you think, oh, I have all this time. I'm going to write a bunch of songs. And, yeah. Uh, and then it's like, shit, there's no ideas coming. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just like, I don't know. I work better when I've got a fire under me. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so when there's nothing, it kind of, I, and I think a lot of people feel this way. It's, it's, you kind of have to force yourself. So I've been, I've been keeping a pretty regular practice schedule. I picked up my cello again and, you know, I haven't had time for that. So I kind of, and that's like, I'm a total baby on that instrument, but it's something to do to kind of push me into something new, you know, and and I've been, I guess, writing a bit, but not, not writing a whole lot. That's intriguing. So you play the cello. Well, I don't play the cello, Steve. I, (laughs) I, I, I noodle around with the cello. I fool around with it, you know. 
That's cool. Yeah. I find it's cool to um, to pick something totally different up sometimes, and it makes your for me like it makes my guitar playing better. Like when I learned the, I, I learned drums a few years ago, not very well. Like I'm kind of a shitty drummer, but <laughs> I, I'm definitely a shitty drummer. But like after playing a lot of drums for a while, like I went back to the guitar, and suddenly I just had a bunch of different, cooler, weird ideas that, for whatever reason, it just sort of got unlocked in my brain. Yeah, I think it, it's it's good to go back into those, into that really humble mode of not being good at something, uh, and remembering I think where you came from and 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 what the baby steps of learning are like. It, it does. I think it really does help. Yeah, yeah. In some way, you know. Can you talk to me a little bit about your writing process? You mentioned that you seem to thrive with like a deadline or or a, somebody breathing down, down your neck a bit. Uh, what is that like for you? Like maybe we could talk about some of the recent stuff, like on the on the last record. Um, what your approach was for writing songs? Did you have to have a, a a a session booked for you to sit down and get it done? No, I think for me, um, what works with writing is just getting into the mode and sort of. Um, perseverance it's sort of saying okay I'm in writing mode I'm going to write every day and and I and I, I don't know I guess I do that better when there's sort of an energy present you know mm-hmm. which is which is right now we're sort of in this vacuum as far as energy goes yeah. um so I haven't been inspired to even push myself to do it I mean I, I I'll jot down I haven't actually written an entire song I've <laughs> just been like right you know, it's like, it's almost like I can't think right now. It's really weird or my focus, it's, I can't focus or something. It's a, it's a very strange sort of, um, place to be in. I don't, I'm not, and I'm not worried about it. It's, um, for me, I think writing is more about just doing it and not, um, overthinking it, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you approach writing for for the last record you know like I was kind of curious about some of the some of the songs that you had guests on whether you were writing with guests in mind like Charlie Sexton or Jimmy Vaughn or people like that or whether you uh you know had a whole repertoire of tunes ready to go and just sort of like slotted those people in yeah what happened is um you know I reconnected with Mike Flanagan um the B3 player here from here in Austin and we're old friends and we just, you know, I really liked his album, The Drifter. He put out his own album, and it's super cool, like diverse album with a lot of special guests on it as well. And and I just loved, I loved what he had done sonic, you know, obviously musically and conceptually. I really liked the album, and then also the way it sounded. It sounded really good, and I was like, man, your album sounds great. He's got really good ears. And, you know, we were connected as friends. Um, and so I start, I, you know, he was just sort of curious, what are you up to? And, and I shot him, I said, you know, I was writing songs. I didn't write songs with anybody in mind. I, I write, I kind of write from my own, I guess, selfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, angle, the best, you know? that's the best reason to really. I mean, everybody does that. Uh, just sort of, I just had a bunch of songs and, and he started, I started sort of sending him, Hey, I've got these songs written. And then he said, you know, you got to come back to Austin and, and do it here. Cause this is where you started and everybody's here still. And so he lives in Austin now. Yeah. He's always lived in Austin. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Mike and I go back from, you know, the nineties as a, old as that sounds, but 
we were friends when we were kids, you know, starting out. We all started out here in Austin. I mean, I started out in Canada, but I also, I moved to Austin by the time I was 21 and yeah. sort of started my recording career here. And we were friends back then. We were all in the same kid group and we went to all the same blues shows and hung oh, out okay. at Antones and yeah. played with all the same people. So, you know, when we reconnected, it was a sort of a familiarity. And he's like, you know, you got to come back to Austin. Let's do it here. And I really loved the way his album sounded. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And why don't you produce it? Um, and of course, he knows where we come from musically. And he, he yeah. kind of brought in the gas. That was more his okay. idea. Like, you know, like this song would suit so-and-so or let's get Chris Layton on these ones. And that kind of just evolved from that. It was kind of an embarrassment of riches down there, players-wise. Players wise yeah, I mean, you're in Nashville, right? Yeah. And it's kind of the same, right? It is, Just, it is, yeah. So tell me about how you approach the record. Like, it, it's a great sounding record, and the guitar is, like, really kind of roomy, but still really present, too. And, uh, you know, I kind of wondered about your, like, how you got your guitar sound, aside from just being you playing it, uh, but also, like, how you how you set up to make that record. Well, we set up, like, we went to this... Um, studio called the fire station in san marcos texas which is actually owned now by texas state university and they run oh. a, a program out of the studio but you can actually still rent the studio it's real reasonable and and it's just one big room yeah right um and i actually part of my very first album young girl blues which we recorded in the 90s early 90s was recorded there so this studio goes back luann barton recorded there i think stevie ray recorded there it's just been around. It's called the fire station. It is an old fire station, but it has this big sort of open room. And uh, so we went there and uh, all set up in one room. That guitar amp, I just had my basic same old Fender basement that I've been using since 1990. Oh, wow. And, yeah. it's, and it's just like a Fender basement, 410, 59 reissue basement with a Telecaster. And that's basically my sound, you know. And we, that was set up right beside the drums. Like everything bled into everything. Yep. Even even when we did the horns and everything. And, and when Jimmy Jimmy Vaughn was in the studio with us, everything was in one room. Uh, when you did, when you had guests in like Jimmy Vaughn or Charlie Sexton, were they playing live with you, or were those overdubbed, or how did you? It's all those? live. It's all, all live. live. Cool. Yeah, yeah. We we were real particular about that because you know blues. That's what blues is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's how we play. I mean, that's how jazz should be recorded. That's how blues should be recorded. It shouldn't be tracked. Totally. We record in real time, and we respond in real time, and it's all improvised. You know, generally we don't know what's what it's going to sound like. We have things mapped out, but you have to be playing together and get that vibe, you know, to yeah. really sound like. A, and so, and and that's what you're hearing. You know, some of those songs, I don't even track vocals over them. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. a couple of them I redid vocals because we had some sonic problems, but too much a lot of or something. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of what you hear is is complete, like. It sounds like that. Like it's. I don't mean that in a in a negative way. I mean that in a great positive way. Like it sounds. Yeah, thanks. It sounds loose, but totally together, and and has that feel that you can't really get by overdubbing. Right. Yeah. That was real, and that was Mike's intention. Yeah. I mean, I've done albums in the past where we tracked and they, I redid my solos and stuff like that, and that's fine too. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's bad. It's just. This was this was a certain thing we were going for. Yeah, yeah. 
And headphones, like, did you, were you set up like in a regular kind of recording environment or was it like a, did you have monitors or how were, how were you doing? Uh, we had headphones. Yeah. And so who's in the band on the record? Um, different guys. I okay. mean, um, George Rains, Big Beat Rains was on drums. He was our first drummer. We used three drummers, so George Big Beat Rains, the great Texas shuffle drummer, legendary dude who's played with Jimmy Vaughn for 25 years and yeah. played with everybody before that. Um, now George is retired, basically retired now. So that's his, maybe one of the last recording projects he ever did. So George on drums. Uh, we also had Chris Layton come in on drums for a couple days. Nice. Yeah, that was really sweet. And then JJ Johnson, who plays with the uh, Tedeschi trucks, he's got a certain kind of finesse. He did the acoustic tracks and uh, a couple of the other things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we had three different drummers, um, and then we had um, a couple of different bass players, Johnny Bradley, who played with uh, Gary Clark, and Chris Marsh, who's a great local Austin player, played with Eric Johnson and people like that, yep. pretty, pretty renowned. And then Kevin Smith, Willie Nelson's guy, came in. So, you know, with all those, with those guys... And then um, me on guitar, Derek O'Brien came in for some guitar, Jimmy Vaughn on guitar, Billy Gibbons played harmonica a bit and sang, and um, let me think, who else? Mike Flanagan on organ, of course, B3 yeah. Hammond. Yeah. And then on horns, we had the Texas horns. Um, Who's in the Texas one- horns these days? Uh, that's Kaz Kazanoff. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah. Mark Kazanoff. Um John Mills and Al Gomez, and then they brought in a couple other guys too. When we did the big, uh, we did a big horn production for one tune. We were going for a, sort of a Bobby Bland sound on one song. Yeah, yeah. Who yeah. does who does the horn arrangements for you? On that one, it was Mike actually. Yeah. Okay. And then we had also um, Ephraim Owens, who plays with Tedeschi Trucks, and Elias Hasling, a couple of jazz guys come in. And I'm thinking that's everybody. That's quite a crew. Yeah, it was quite a crew. And um, so what we did is, you know, the first date, we'd have like George Raines and me and Derek O'Brien. And I think that's how we started was just four piece. Mm-hmm. And, grew and we there. just and ran a couple of tunes that way. And then when we were doing the more bigger productions, Jimmy Vaughn came in and the yeah. Texas Horns and cool yeah for the most part it's pretty bluesy although there's some departures but like was it a conscious thing to like take it way back to just some real greasy blues material yeah um because that's what i do basically i don't really i mean i'm i wouldn't say i'm a super versatile artist i I do what i do right (laughs) i try to do it really well yeah and i i'm basically a blues guitar player i i don't really venture into other styles too much but you know there is a lot of uh i i also play nylon string i'm really yeah into that so so the acoustic stuff is another angle of something i do but mm-hmm. it's basically blues yeah there's some like hendrixy kind of moments on there like um what's that what's the name of that? come to me is is sort of like got that hendrixy feel going on and and there's some other stuff in there too you know like it's cool it's all over the place yeah it is kind of all over the place I like and that. that's just because those are the songs I wrote. And I sort of just said to Mike, this is what I got. 
Yeah. And the songs all sort of ran thematically together. They were sort of about a period of time and they all ran together. So we, we went with that. We didn't try to make just a straight blues album. Yeah. And when you, mm-hmm. when you record records like that, where, where obviously like the guitar is really forward and a big part of what you do, do you mess around with sounds at all? Or, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty set in your way. You've got your guitar you've had forever and your amp that you've had forever, but like some of it sounds like you're almost going for like an Albert Collinsy kind of thing on some stuff. And I do my thing, and you know, I was I was really influenced by Collins, yeah. Albert Collins, and Gatemouth Brown, and people like T Bone Walker, and those guys just had a sound. They didn't they really, sure did. they didn't really, you know, they just sounded like themselves every time, and that that's always what I've been trying to do. I never, uh, you know, my ultimate goal is just to sound like me. And people to be able to say, hey, that's Su- I think that's Sue Foley, you know? Yeah. Um, and to have a signature sound. So, no, I don't really experiment with guitar sounds. I don't use pedals in general. I use a, you know, a small booster pedal just to thicken up the tone if I can't crank the amp up. And I'll use some reverb, maybe some tremolo, but I don't mess around. I just try. I, I just play it straight. You know, I grew up following guys like Gatemouth Brown, and those guys just... They just turned the amp on and played, yeah. and they had one. They had one guitar and one amp, and that's it, you know. So I kind of I, I I go with that. It seems like some of your biggest influences, from what I can hear, are a lot of them are Texas players, like Gatemouth Brown, T Bone Walker. I think I like I definitely hear some Lightning Hopkins in there. Um, I mean, it's kind of cool that you ended up in in Texas when when there's such a long tradition of that kind of playing. And Albert Collins, obviously. Um, are there any other Texas players that were big ones for you? Yeah, I mean it yeah and it, it it's funny you should say that because you know recently I I moved, you know when I moved to Austin back to Austin um I dug up my all my all my stuff obviously came with me and my old record collection from when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, when I was and I I have a small record collection but it's the same record collection it's all my first blues albums but right. almost all of them were Texas guitar players just by chance and it is kind of funny that I ended up down here. Yeah. But you know, uh, Lightning, T-Bone, Jimmy Vaughn changed my life. Uh-huh. Um Was he a, was he like a mentor to you back in the day too like back in the 90s or or did no. you not meet him until more recently? I met him a few times back then, but Jimmy was really out of our reach. Really? He was like an untouchable god? He was totally untouchable for us. We just kind of like, you know, we're gaga (laughs) over him. And he never really hung out. Um, Okay. Especially after his brother died. He kind of went underground for a while. And um, you'd see him around town. Mm-hmm. I'd saw I'd seen his shows and I sometimes I'd meet him like I was good friends with Luann Barton and Luann ended up in Jimmy's band so sure you know through Luann I kind of knew Jimmy a bit but he was really untouchable it's only been recently that he's really we've been able to you know I've been able to play with him and I hang out with them and, and they're you know he's very approachable now yeah took a while though oh my god yeah we were <laughs> completely intimidated by Jimmy I was intimidated. I was intimidated by all those guys. I mean, I sure. those guys are like bigger than life to me. Like Gatemouth Brown scared the hell out of me, and he- know, Albert Collins, without a doubt, scared all of us. You know. Really? Uh, did you yeah. end up meeting those guys before they died? Oh yeah, we met all of those guys and played okay. with all of them. Yeah. And and it's not to say they were scary people. Like 
We were just scared of them because they were so damn good and sort larger of than life. Way, I totally get it. Larger than life, bigger than us, and I I think when you have heroes, it's good to keep them in that perspective in a way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but we got to play with them. I mean, I did get to play with Gatemouth, um, and we hung out with them a lot too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we interacted with all those guys. What was Gatemouth like? He was uh, very. Um, uh, his his name suits his his character. Let's put it that he had a big mouth and he, he really was opinionated. Yeah, I basically hated everybody oh, else. Really? Yeah. yeah, he was very opinionated and uh, mouthy, but very funny. And uh, I had a I had a really nice interaction with him later on. Um, but we hung out with him, and and he loved to smoke weed, and we would always just mm-hmm. bring. You know, we always knew. And this is back when I was in Canada before I even came to Texas. We knew to meet Gate, you just had to have weed and you just offer him something for his pipe and that would put him in talk, put him in your good he, in his good books. Yeah, so we would meet him all over the place and go see his show. If he was ever close to us, we'd go see his show. Yeah, those guys would come to Canada a lot cuz I was in Vancouver, you know, when I was growing up and Gatemouth played the Yale all the time and and all those guys did. It was it was a great way to see cool guitar players back then. It really was, yeah. And and I think probably the first time I saw Gate was in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. And we would would always uh, bring an offering for his pipe and get a couple of minutes with him. But he was really (laughs) sweet. You know, he wasn't a a mean guy, but he was just real mouthy and... and Uh He was bold, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he was such a badass that he could do it. Like, you know, you just couldn't... He was such a badass. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to pull off being a crusty old... Old buzzard sometimes, but but he, he I'm sure he could do it. I met yeah, Al, I met Albert King it. once, and Albert King was a crusty <gasps> old buzzard like that too. Wow, good for you. Yeah, I never <laughs> saw Albert King. Lucky you. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, cool. um, so I know you've gone back and forth from Ottawa to Austin. What brought you back this time? So how and how long have you been there this time? Um, three years now, okay. but so, four years kind of back since we started working on the Ice Queen album. So, so you moved down to make the record and just stayed? Yeah, I kind of started coming back and forth when we were doing pre-production, and I started playing back down here again and sort of reconnecting with everybody. And and then after the album, I just moved back. Just because? Like, or was there something, like, why the, the big middle period of time where you're back in Ottawa? Um, well, I raised my son. Oh, okay. I went I went back to Canada in the late 90s where I had a baby. Yeah. And, uh, and just stayed up. It was time. It was time to go home and raise my kid, and yeah. you know, do something different. And I worked in Canada, and mm-hmm. I came back down to the states a bit, but I wasn't touring around that much because I was raising a kid. But so my kid's like twenty three now, so right. he's out of the house. He's basically, you know, he's in graduate school, and kind of was my time to say, hey, you know what, my kid's gone. I can do what I want. So yeah. And so are you are you actively playing a lot around Austin these days? Well, not these days, but generally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as yeah. a as a general rule, you're you're sort of like digging back into the scene and stuff. Oh yeah, we've been doing that a lot. Yeah. You know, um and touring, we spent a lot of time on the road last year touring the Ice Queen the last 18 months, 2 years. So we were all over the place. We were in Europe a lot. We were all over Canada, we were all over the states, but Basically, when I'm at home, I'll I'll play local gigs or some great venues here. Yeah, we still play Antown's, our old 
the old haunt? Our old home, and we play the Continental and Sea Boys, and there's just some really cool clubs, you know? I love playing yeah. clubs. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about the Austin scene in the 90s, like when you first got down there? Like, like how, how did you move there in the first place? Like, it's not easy for us Canadians to move down here. Did you did, do it clandestinely for a while, or were you totally above board the whole time? Um, well, what happened is we were... I was based out of Vancouver when I first started touring with my own band. Yeah. I moved from Ottawa to Vancouver when I was 18 and then sort of became part of the Vancouver scene for a bit and hung out there and formed a band. Then we hit the road and we got, um, we were in Edmonton and we got, uh, we met Mark Hummel, this uh, harmonica player from California, pretty well known. And uh, he was looking for a band that wanted to tour and he just hired my whole band. He knew um, an immigration lawyer down in California, so he got us set up with papers, and we just toured with him for, I think, over a year. And that was just solid touring, like, what is just living on the road, and we were all, like, 18, 19, 20. So we did that. This is before your first album. Oh, yeah, this is before, because it was down, you know, once I got stateside, Clifford Antone saw me, and uh, he kind of you know, told me to keep in touch and send him some demos. And so I did. And then, and that's how I ended up in Austin at 21, but I'd been touring for three years straight up until that time. So what made you make the move to Austin? Was it the Antones connection? Oh God. Yeah. You know, I was in love with, when I saw the fabulous Thunderbirds, I saw Jimmy Vaughn at when I was 15 or 16 in Ottawa. Yeah. Um, and then I saw an Antone's Roadshow come through Vancouver. I don't know if you were in Vancouver at that time. Uh, well, I, I grew up there, so I was, but I might have oh. been, been pretty little. <laughs> Are you much younger than me? This was 86 or something? Uh, I was in grade 7 then, so okay. no, I, probably didn't, <laughs> I probably didn't see that. How did you see Albert King? Shoot. I saw him when I was like in grade 8. Whoa! Yeah, I was into it big time. He played the PNE, and uh, I went and saw him, and and uh, met him after the show and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. So yeah. Um, okay, where was I? Uh, Mark Hummel hired us, and then we we got stateside, and we just toured stateside after that. One nighters in the U.S. and you know prior to that we've been touring the Canadian prairies and going, yeah. and we've been across Canada coast to coast I booked myself you know I was 18 years old and I was booking myself and it's hard you know doing the whole thing yeah Yeah, I I, I just did it and I I look back now and I'm thinking damn you know had some energy back then yeah I was into it (laughs) uh so was it a matter of like you went to Austin and and looked around and you were like shit this is the place for me and you just that's where you ended up staying like it seems like it could have been almost anywhere no, it couldn't have been ever anywhere be at the time. It had to be Austin. It was, you know, we saw the Thunderbirds. Then I saw a, an Anton's Roadshow come through Vancouver at the Commodore. And I saw everything that was going on in Austin. I was just like, I have to go to Austin. I have to go to Austin. You know, Stevie Ray was big. The fabulous yeah. Thunderbirds were big. But the yeah. sound that was coming out of there was unique. Yeah. It was like a new invented blues sound. And, and what they were doing down there was unlike anywhere. And this, you know, all those old guys were still around, you know, and they were coming into Antones. We knew about all this. And I was like, I have to go to Austin. I have to go to Austin. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I have to go to Austin. And I knew that years before I ever ended up there. How hard was it to get into the 
scene there, like partly as a woman, but also like as a, just as a newcomer to the, to the scene. Like it, it, I can't imagine that it was super open and welcoming, although maybe it was. Oh, it was. It was you'd it? be okay. surprised. You'd yeah. be surprised. You know, I've been places where I was not welcome and I won't say where, but, um, I've been places where they really did have an attitude about women and, uh-huh. and they gave me the cold shoulder. And, you know, I've been, I've been through some stuff when I was pretty young, but when I got to Austin, it just blew my mind. You know, first of all, I was brought to Austin by Clifford Anton. Clifford sent me a plane ticket and said, Oh wow. Okay. He, he called me on the phone. You know, I sent, what happened is I met Clifford at the, um, I was playing with Mark Hummel, my band and I, and, we were at the um, Blues Music Awards, which were at the time called the W.C. Handy Awards in Memphis. Yeah. And we were just going through Memphis at that time on gigs, and we were playing right at the time of the, blue, uh, the Handys, and we met all kinds of people back then, like Robert Jr. Lockwood. Met, I got to play with Duke Robillard. And anyway, I, we met all these guys. It was crazy. You know, I was a little kid, and I was just like, wow, blues heaven, yeah, you know? yeah. And um, Clifford Anton was there, and he saw me sitting in with Duke, and um, he was just standing there, you know. Did you know who he was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We knew all about Austin. Yeah, we were all about it. And we knew Clifford, and he was there, and he he came up to me after, and he said, hey, man, you sounded great. I've heard all about <laughs> you. He would heard about me from Angela Straley, who, okay. who, we met, who we met in Canada. Yeah. So it kind of was, you know, this whole circular kind of thing and it seemed like fate and anyway he said hey man send me uh send me something and he gave me his card and we got off the road I went into the studio and I sent him a demo tape a little cassette he heard the tape and he called me up and said hey what are you doing because there was one song on the tape it was a real lowdown solo thing I did it was very lightning slim lightning hopkins kind of sounding and and he was like man that was really low down what are you doing I was like nothing i just gotten off the road we've been touring for like a year straight and with, with mark hummel yeah, yeah i was totally burnt out and he's like well c- we want to come to austin i said yeah he goes i said when he goes tomorrow i said okay <laughs> so i just left really yeah uh so he he brought me down the first weekend i sat in with albert collins and katie webster and it was like okay i'm not leaving you know and so how did it work in those days with the antones label like was he like I know Angela Straley was involved in the label as well, but was he like hands on about the label or how did oh, that all yeah. work? He was. Okay. Clifford was the figurehead and he was he had the the ears, right? He didn't yeah. run things. he wasn't interested interested in making phone calls, but he had the ears. Clifford had great ears and great knowledge of blues and and really good taste. So, you know, he basically brought me down and signed me to the label. I lived at his house for a year. Wow. You know, and, and he put me on stage with everybody. He was all about that, you know. That's it was so Clifford cool. Yeah, it was Clifford that put Stevie Ray up with Albert King and Yeah, yeah. Hooked up the fabulous Thunderbirds with Muddy Waters. I mean, he was really about that. That was a big part of his thing. Like these old guys and these young guys, we gotta connect these generations. So this music still lives. And that was his whole modus was the blues has to live. He was all about blues. Yeah. He didn't want to hear anything but blues. Really? <laughs> yeah, he didn't want anything. He was just like, blues man, just all play, the time. Play, play the blues was his motto. And he, he instilled that into all of us. And that, you know, and that includes Mike Flanagan, who 
produced my album, you know, we were all kids. You know, Clifford was our mentor. He would take us around, introduce us to these guys, put us on stage with them. And He was a real character, like from an outsider, like I never met him, but I did go to Antone's back in the day and I, I saw him there and he was like, he was a presence. Like he always sort of made himself known. He'd always come up on stage and like he, he must have been a real character to, to hang with. Oh, he was. And he, you know, he was like my uncle or something, right? He yeah. loved me and, you know, he kind of was the dude that discovered me and really mm-hmm. laid it on the line because... To be fair, I couldn't get anything going in Canada. Right. I got some gigs, and there was some really cool people that liked what I did, and but most of the other people didn't get it, mm-hmm. and it, and were ambivalent, and I kind of felt like I didn't fit in. And that's not to say anything about Canada. I just, I think what I was going for. It had to be Austin. I guess it did. I mean, I I, I was just really into the Texas sound. I really wanted to learn how to play it. And I was so in love with it. Yeah, yeah. I was just really, really in love with it. And I still am. And I'm still the same. It's, I still listen to the same records. I mean, we're, we're doing pre-production for our next album, Mike and I, right now. And we're just, like, digging into Frankie Lee Sims and the same stuff <laughs> we've been listening shit. to for 30 years, you know? Like, we just keep repeating Slim Harpo, Frankie Lee Sims, Freddie King, and you keep going back to the same well, and it keeps giving you it does. There's sustenance. New, yeah, there's new depths of awesome that you get into with those kind of recordings, I find. Even if you don't listen to them for a while, you can turn on a Slim Harpo record after 20 years, and there's like a whole different level to it, I find. Yeah, you're like, yeah, the same Jimmy Reed songs we've been listening to, and we've heard <laughs> everybody do a million times. We still go back and go, God damn it. How did they do that? I know. Why is that so cool? Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So can you tell me a bit about like your, your earliest musical, like learning the guitar and how you got into it in the first place? Was sure. It, was, yeah, it always, I mean, was it always blues stuff that you were into? As a kid? No, I didn't know about blues when I was a kid. I, okay. I, I just, um, I grew up in the 70s and um, my dad played guitar. My three older brothers played guitar. I'm the youngest of five kids, littlest girl. Yeah. And uh, had three older brothers and an older sister. And, and my brothers all played. My dad played. Oh, okay. And my dad played Irish music like traditional Celtic and sort of like traditional folk music and stuff and country. Um, But he was really into songs and stuff and Irish music, which was very cool growing up with some great wordplay and just funny songs and things he sang that always stay with me. 
And then my brothers were all into hard rock, basically, the 70s, you know, yep. Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin. My brothers were all rockers. And they got you into some of that stuff. Yeah, like I heard ZZ, you know, and I think about it now, the fact that we got to play, we get to hang out and play with Billy Gibbons. That's so like crazy. We've been, hearing, we've been hearing ZZ since I was a little kid. That's yeah. the first blues I probably ever heard. I can remember my brother's albums and... ZZ was huge. Yeah. Like when I when I played with Billy Gibbons, my brothers were just like, "Holy shit!" Like I am, va- <laughs> I am validated. Yeah. They don't know Gatemouth Brown and you know, all these other people, but when we play with Billy Gibbons, he was like, "Okay." Yeah. My sister's badass. <laughs> That's cool. So yeah, so I grew up watching them, and I, uh, you know, at thirteen, I was just. Were any of them playing I, guitar or anything? Yeah, they all played guitar. Okay. Everybody played guitar in our house. There was guitars everywhere and loud. You know, my brothers all had rock bands and stuff. So, so we, I kind of grew up watching them, just going, okay. And then, you know, and all these guitar heroes that I would see: Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. We had posters on the wall. They had posters of Zeppelin was really big in our house. And you didn't see any uh, of those bands, did you? Like, did they come through Ottawa when you were a kid? I didn't see any of those bands, you yeah. know. First concert I went to was Tom Petty, which is pretty cool. Yeah, hey, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. yeah. When I was 13, that was the first live music I ever saw. Did that leave a, an impression as far as, like, you wanting to pick up an instrument and play? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I started playing guitar right after that, I think, because I started at 13. And so, like, was there an acoustic guitar lying around that you got into, or did you have an electric guitar? Yeah, no, I started on acoustic. My dad, I just said to my dad, can I have a guitar? And he just gave me one of the guitars that was around the house, like, yeah, take this one, you know. This, yeah. There's your guitar, right? So what, what, what were you learning right off the bat? Beatles songs, songbooks, yeah. uh, chords. I didn't really start into lead and playing single note stuff for quite a while until I was about 16. I fe- spent the first few years just playing chords and then... So when were you first exposed to blues? I was first exposed to blues in about my early, you know, a couple of years later when I was about 15 in high school. I had a friend and we were... Really, he was really into the British invasion, and I was really into like the Stones. And then we were just reading up on the Stones, and we were like, "Who are these guys? They're talking about Muddy Waters and Slim Harpo and stuff." And so we started buying those records and going, "What is this music? This is so weird, you know?" Really? Yeah. Because yeah, you, know, you hear the Stones do King Bee, and then you hear Muddy Waters do King Bee or Slim Harpo do King Bee, and you're like, "Wait a minute, they're playing it so slow." I know, they're so slow. And then, you know, all of a sudden it started to sink in. And I was like, what is this? You know, this is so wild. But it really wasn't until I saw Blues Live in a club that it, it got into me. And that was when I was 15. I saw James Cotton. Oh, man. And his band. And yeah. they were really hot at the time. Yeah. That was a um, hell of a band. It was a really badass band. It was like Killer Allison on drums. And um, shoot, that, that guitar player, shoot. His name will come to me. It was so good. Um, anyway, they were a really badass band and James Cotton. So that sort of stuck with me big time. Like I walked out of that concert and my that was feet in didn't Ottawa? touch. That was in Ottawa. My feet didn't touch the ground for weeks. Really? Like I got so high from that. Yeah. You know, and I realized, okay, there's something going on with this music. You know, people think blues, oh, blues, it's sad. Or, <laughs> but I got high. I mean, I was high for weeks. 
I mean, my spirit, everything, I, I saw the world differently. And I, I had an epiphany. You know, it was like I knew I wanted to play guitar, but until I saw James Cotton play live, I was like, then I was like, okay, I have to play the blues. I don't know how I'm going to do it. So how, how did you do it? it out. Like what, what was your path to figuring it out? Well, I um, started to try to fit. I bought a lot of blues records, first of all, and I still have them, the same ones today. So what were the, um, what were the big ones for you? You know, the best of Muddy Waters, or even that Muddy Waters stuff that he did with Johnny Winter. Those albums were really good. Those are great albums, and those are some of the first blues albums I heard. But, you know, Muddy Waters and then Sunny Boy, and we would just kind of pick an artist and buy an album and kind of just went down Howlin' Wolf, <laughs> obviously, all the chess records. Willie when you Dixon. say when you say we, was, did you have somebody that was along for the ride with you that was like... Yeah, a, my okay. friend Jan, and, and he would like, we would buy records together, and we tried to learn stuff. And then I started, I kind of moved on. I started to go to the local blues jams when I was about 16, and... Where were those? Then, was that like at the Rainbow back then? No, it was at a place called San Antonio Rose, the downstairs club. It was like a basement club on Rideau Street. Okay. And um, that's where I met like Tony D and oh, yeah, yeah. the whole Ottawa mafia. Sure. But Tony was really cool. He was a few years older than me and he was already established and he taught. I remember I, I knew that he taught lessons, so I asked to take some lessons from him because I couldn't really figure stuff out. I, I just I just couldn't fit, pick it up off the records very well. I didn't know what they were doing. So Yeah, you kind of need somebody to put it into context. And, and pre-internet, that wasn't as easy as it is now. Yeah, and it, Tony really taught me some good stuff. He basically taught me how to teach myself, which was the most valuable lesson anybody mm-hmm. can teach is here's how you're going to pick it up. Here's what's happening. Here's what they're doing. You know, this is what turnarounds are. And um, Good work, Tony. This, yeah, I mean, it, it meant the world to me. And, and after that, like, and he told me that, here, listen to this stuff. And he said, you know, listen to the little Walter stuff. You hear those two guitars? That's Louis Myers and Robert Jr. Lockwood. Well, those two patterns, you need to internalize that stuff. They're doing everything you need to know. Everything you need to know, and also those early, those Muddy Waters albums with Johnny Winter, Johnny's playing all that stuff on that so precisely and pristinely that you can just pick it out. And once you know what it is, those patterns are golden. Like right. you can live and die by those. And, yeah. and I still refer back to those, you know, obviously all those blues patterns just stay the same. So it's very simple music, but it's, um, it's it's the whole journey of blues is finding yourself within that of course. context, right? That's the life's journey of it. And learning the basics is really, it's only going to take, I always tell people, and I've taught a little bit, I would say learning the basics will teach you, take you six months. It'll take you a lifetime to learn how to really do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? There's a lot of truth to that. It's sort of It's sort of a cliche and it's very true at the same time. Yeah, it is really true because, I mean, the, the, when you listen to blues players, there's only people that there's certain people that stand out and you're like, that's an individual sound or that person's really saying something honest. The rest just sounds like all the same stuff, which I can imagine people hear blues and think, ugh, blues, you know, like a slow blues is, is the most boring thing or the most exciting thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's been butchered like the blues in it. Yeah. And it's, and it can be so cliche and it's so, so I can see where a lot of people would just want to run the other way and say, ugh, blues, ooh, you know. But at the same time, it's like when you're really doing it, it's, there's, there's nothing, nothing like it. 
there's nothing as badass as blues. <laughs> nothing as hard to play as a slow blues. That's my opinion. So you were learning a bunch at the at the jams in Ottawa, and did you have uh, like were there other kids your age that were starting to play that you could be in bands with? No, everybody was older. Yeah. And it wasn't until I moved to Vancouver when I was 18. I, you know, I had a choice when I was 18. I left home, and I, I'd already been playing professionally a couple of years. And I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I had a choice. I could move to Toronto or Vancouver, you know, in Canada. Those are the two main cities. So I moved to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I met my, my first band, and they were all my age, which was great. We were so, all kids together. Were you playing at the Yale and stuff all the time back then? Yeah, the first place I went was the Yale. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I got to town. I got there by myself with me and my guitar. And uh, yeah, what do I do? I go to the Blues Jam at the Yale. Hell yeah. Met all the players, yeah. What players did you hook up with in Vancouver to be your first band? I wonder if I know those guys. Um, well, John Penner on bass. They were all, We were all young. We all hung out at the Yale watching the jam. You know, we yeah. we knew the Lavin brothers and uh, Tim Hersey and sure. all the... All the local mafioso. Did you get to know Jim Burns at all? I love Jim Burns. And I've only recently, I used to go see Jim all the time, and I've only recently became friends with him. I did some shows with him out west uh, last year, and I told him how much I revered him. Yeah. So we've become friends since then. I love him. I produced seven records for him, so we've worked together. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, I love him. He's so soulful, you know? He is, yeah. He's totally uh, overlooked, I think, as far as like like incredible vocalists in Canada. Yeah, and just just, got got soul. Like he just puts everything in the right place. He's deep. Your guitar style is really interesting too. Like, how did you develop? Like, I play with a thumb pick, and I know that you do. I don't know if you do all the time or not, but um, how did you get into? Because the thumb pick is not a, it's not a, it doesn't scream blues guitar exactly. Uh, well, I saw pic- I honestly saw pictures of Muddy Waters, and he had a thumb pick on. Oh, okay. and I thought I'd try it. Yeah. And um, it worked for me, and I, I just never. So I, I started on country blues, so I like that open hand kind of finger picking sure. thing. Yeah, um, I listen to a lot of, you know, country blues stuff. Like I don't know, like Mississippi John Hurt. And did you learn a lot of that stuff too? Some of it, you know. Yeah. I can do finger picking. I'm pretty good now. I, de- I I love the Piedmont sort of style a lot. I can do that pretty well. Yeah. Um, but I like the open hand thing where you can mm-hmm. use your fingers and the thumb. So yeah. I just always use the thumb pick. And so like when you play a gig, is it all thumb pick or do you alternate between a, a pick? Never and a, use, I never, never use a use flat it. pick. Okay. Never. I don't, wouldn't know what to do with one. Yeah, I can use either. my fingers really well. Yeah. And you've been influenced by some flamenco stuff too, right? Yeah. So what happened is when I, when I left Austin in the late nineties to have my son, I, I went home and I, Kind of was in a rut musically. I couldn't, hadn't learned anything new for so long guitar-wise. And then it was actually Tony D was still in Ottawa. And I contacted, you know, I got in touch with him. And I was back in town and having a baby and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. Tony was having a baby too. Uh, so our, our sons are about the same age. And we used to run around together a little bit with the kids. Okay. But Tony told me, hey, I'm taking, yeah, I'm taking some flamenco lessons. I was like, hey, that sounds cool. Oh, I'd love to do that. And so I started taking flamenco lessons, and uh, that really... There's a good flamenco teacher in Ottawa? 
Yeah, a guy named James Cohen, this guy, and he was just a great guitar player, still is, and I'm not sure he's as active in his guitar career now. He's gone into other things, but he was a great, uh, great teacher and uh, taught me a lot. But man, my first flamenco lesson was like I'd never played the instrument before. And I'd been playing for over 20 years at the time. So I was like, oh boy. What did you pick up right hand wise that that was new that you'd never thought of or never done before? What First thing, I was always fascinated with the right hand. Because, you know, watching guys like Gatemouth, because Gatemouth never used a pick, and Gatemouth had an amazing right hand. In fact, his right hand is what I was, I would just watch his right hand the whole show. Albert Collins, same thing, never sure. used a pick. Best tone in the world, no pick, right hand technique, you know. I, this kind of sat in with me. So when I took flamenco lessons, all these right hand techniques uh, really opened my eyes, Um just the rascados and the piccados, just different things. And a lot of them are derivative of classical techniques, but a little more, I don't know, loose or or evolved or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just really, it just showed me a whole bunch of things to do. And like I said, my first flamenco lesson was like, I'd never played guitar before. (laughs) Literally, it was like, I don't know, I had to go home like, and really play really slow and and learn these little techniques. And then over the years, I've just been applying that to my Telecaster playing. And of course, I always play nylon now. So all of that has really changed who I am as a guitar player. Do you find that some of the techniques that you picked up playing flamenco were translatable to what you were doing in the blues world? Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, I really find it. And it's really, it's really what it's done is it's given me an individual sound because, mm-hmm. you know, most people don't use a lot of those techniques on electric guitar, first of all. So, and it really um, helped me evolve my right hand and really become strong on the right. Because I'm not super fast on the left, you know, I don't really play really fast or super technical, but my right hand is pretty, pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can do all kinds of things that you don't see electric guitar players doing. So I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm curious about the the guitar that you play. So the pink, the Paisley Telly, like yeah. it, it's obviously been a, a thing with you for, for years and years. Is it actually the same guitar? It is actually the same guitar. I've had the same guitar for 30 years. I got it in Vancouver oh, yeah. when, I, when I moved there. And... Um, I first had another telly. I started out on a, on acoustic. Then I had a, a a hollow body sort of arch top thing because I love Memphis Minnie and I wanted a guitar like hers. Oh, and cool! Yeah. I had a big arch top, um, and then I got to a hollow body, and then I went to a solid body. My first solid body was a blonde telly because I, I thought about Telecasters and I thought about. Albert Collins, who I'd seen, and sure. then I thought about Muddy Waters and Keith Richards, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to... And everybody at the time was buying Strats. Yeah, Strats were the thing. And, yeah, totally. Yeah, because of the Vaughn Brothers. Um, so I was like, ah, I'm not, I'm not going to buy a Strat because everybody's sounding the same, so I'm going to go with the telly. And then I, and then when they re- reissued those Paisleys, I remember I walked into Long and McQuaid in Vancouver, and I saw the Paisley, and I was like, Wow! what's that that's cool I need that guitar and my boyfriend at the time bought it for me for Christmas nice 
I paid it off. He paid the first payment. And, you know, Long and McQuaid is great for the payment plans. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. They're wonderful. And so I paid the whole thing off. And that guitar is just like my one guitar I toured with forever. I never had a spare. Wow. That's amazing, actually. I know. I never, I didn't even use a tuner for the first 10 years. I didn't even know to have, I didn't even have a Plug the damn thing in and go. I love it. I would just tune it and go and like, it was pretty hardcore. So yeah, and I still play it, but I did get two new ones, two new Paisleys, and they're also the Japanese tellies. Is that original one? Is it a Japanese one? Yeah, okay. it's a Japanese one. And they're really good. It's been a great guitar. It's just that I get a little nervous on and off, on and off planes and stuff now. Right, right. With this 30-year-old guitar, you know. Yeah. It's it's precious. Uh, so I got two new ones. Jimmy Vaughn gave me one and Billy gave me one. Nice. And then they're both Paisleys and I've got them all set up. And I've got them set up <clears throat> a little differently. One I call the Billy, one I call the Jimmy. Uh-huh. The Jimmy has the Jimmy has the Tex Mex Fender, you know the, the pickups. Fender pickups, yeah. and the Billy I have these um, a little more high end. What are they? It's not a better pickup; it's just a just different sound. Yeah, and the ones that are in your original one are those just the stock ones that came with? Yeah, it? they're just stock. Yeah, That's awesome. I've never I haven't changed anything on that guitar except <laughs> had it refretted like three times. So never in your career were you like, hey, I should probably get in, like another guitar. No, because you know I saw I always saw Albert Collins. He always had the one guitar, and I you're like the only wanted... guitar player that's never said that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. But those guys always had one guitar. You know, I saw Gatemouth over and over. He always had the one Firebird that he yeah. played. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, that's what you do. You play one guitar, and you develop you develop a relationship with it, and it gets all your soul in there. And that's so true. You squeeze everything out of that one. That's a good that's philosophy. That's what I always thought. I guess, you know, I I have a bunch, like people have given me tellies over the years. And and now on the road, I'll, I'll bring the, the two so I actually do have a spare. Because yeah. I, I finally got like up with the times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe you should have a spare if you change a string, you know, if you need to change a string. I used to just change strings on the go. And, sure. Yeah, you're yeah. probably really good at it. I'm okay at it. Yeah, pretty good. Um. Can you just tell me, like, I know that you've you've had a bunch of different records, but we sort of talked about your first record and, and your recent record. Um, I'm just curious how that how your first record felt to you and, like, what you remember about those actual sessions. Because at that time, I'd imagine you probably hadn't been in the studio much, or if you had, it was pretty minimal. And this was, like, like really, you were being thrown in the fire. You're down in Austin and making a record, like, that was pretty legit, and it's a great-sounding record. Um, what was your first session like probably pretty stressful (laughs) um you know they were putting me in the studio with george rains and derek derek o'brien and i just got into austin and i was sort of just getting established there were you like 19 or 20 or something when that i was like 20 okay that's young that's so young i know and then they brought in Kim Wilson on harp and pine top perkins on piano i mean there there was a lot of amazing big people coming in and but you know the thing about Austin and I will say this is and it struck me as soon as I got there everybody was so friendly and welcoming mm-hmm. and they really they were just so nice I mean they're still like that here Texas is a pretty friendly place Austin's a pretty friendly place the music scene the musicians you know and I and I thought at the time I thought man these are like 
some of the best musicians in the world, and there's no competitive, I mean, there's competitive streaks in all of us, but everybody was like, yeah, we're all in it together, you know, Austin's Austin, you know, and so everybody felt really warm and and supportive, and I I think I felt pretty safe, and Clifford Anton was there guiding me, and... Was Clifford there during the the actual sessions? He was, like, sitting in the... In the studio, for that? Um, he would come in and out. He didn't really sit in on sessions, but he would pop in and and just see if everything was all right. But he was a real he was a great figurehead. You know, he would he knew kind of how to come in and go and 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 where his role was. And that's cool. He was great at turning you on to cool music and saying, "Hey, you ever think about doing this tune? Ch- check this out." And he mm. gave me a lot of song ideas. So where where were the where did the repertoire come from for the first record? Was that stuff you'd been playing for a while, or or were people throwing songs at you to record, or how did that work? Uh, Clifford brought in a bunch. There was probably stuff that there was a few things I'd written, um, like the one the the song that got me signed was a song called "Gone Blind," which mm-hmm. Clifford loved, and that was recorded up in Vancouver, and he. I never could recreate really? what he wanted in that. He loved that track so much that we used the original that couldn't. I had done in Vancouver. Um, but everything else, you know, he he turned me on to some Lightning Slim and the Ike Turner Cuban Getaway. He right. turned me on to that. Um, Earl Hooker was mine. I, I I just love Earl Hooker. I was already into Earl Hooker. He's probably my favorite guitar player, and he's not he's not a Texas guitar player, but no. I was huge on Earl Hooker, Chicago. Yeah, he's great. Blues guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that record was probably done pretty quickly. And like, was it all live and stuff? Or did you overdub some solos and whatnot? Or how did that we all work? Probably, we probably overdubbed some of it. Back yeah. at that time, I think people were really into tracking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> you know? Um, but no, the, I mean, all the all the basic tracks were done live together, rhythm tracks. And then I think they probably had me re-sing stuff and do a couple of solos over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's great to have a record that that you can look back on, and I don't know how you feel about it, but it, when I, you know, I I had it back in the day when it first came out. Oh, oh and, my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and I put wow. it on the other day too, just to ca- sort of catch up on everything, and and like it totally it totally holds up. Like it sounds great still, and it doesn't sound dated and cheesy. And I don't know how you feel about it, like artistically, but it's pretty nice to be able to look back and not be embarrassed by your first record. Yeah, and, and thank you for saying that. Thank you so much, because Mike Flanagan said the same thing, because he, you know, we came up together, and he, he went back and listened to all my albums before he re- produced me, and he was like, man, that album still holds up. Yeah. So, yeah, it is good not to be embarrassed. <laughs> As a piece of work from that long ago, if you can be detached from it in that way, it's, it's a really great, cool, original blues album. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's really nice to hear. I, I don't look back all that much, but I'm not embarrassed <laughs> by it. I know that. I, I wanted to ask you about your book that uh, I, I've read about a bunch of things about it, but I, but I can't see it anywhere. Is it something that you, that you haven't released yet or what's up with that? Yeah, I haven't released it yet. Um, oh, okay. So what's the scoop? Now it, in 2001, I started interviewing women guitar players. Yeah. Cause I was curious. I had the time I was home still with my son and, and, um, I realized there was no sort of book of its kind. I I, I just kind of did it on a whim. I started calling people up and just like you are, you know, just yeah. same kind of thing, like curiosity and like blues specific, or was it just just women playing guitar? Just women playing guitar. So there's a okay. lot of classic classical players, jazz, oh, rock, okay. 
you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of, a lot of people. I, and I, I just compiled, you know, over the years, I compiled over a hundred interviews and they run, uh, portions of them have been running in Guitar Player Magazine the last while, a couple of years. I just like little excerpts from my interviews. And, and basically what happened is I did so much, so much interviews and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, I got a little overwhelmed by it, put it down, picked it up over okay. the years. I, I drafted the book about two or three times. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I've just never been happy with with it. And um, so now I'm actually back at work and I just finally am uh, circulating a book proposal right now. I finally got my proposal together that I like and an idea and a, and a, it seemed like a really simple way to do it. But for years, I just couldn't figure out how to do this because there was so much stuff I collected. And yeah, there's a lot of great women players as it turns out. Right. Yeah. Uh, and a lot, and we had a lot of good interviews and, um, so right now I'm, I'm shopping the book like and, right now just okay. started. And it, and so after it w- t- almost 20 years of sitting Amazing. on these interviews. So yeah. it, w- it will be like a compilation of interviews. That's the idea with the book. Yeah. It's interviews and essays and, and sort of trying to just document some of these conversations that I had and, yep. and I, keep a, a an interesting theme about it but yeah so yeah so female guitarists but and now since i started i could interview another hundred probably because <laughs> there's so many more on the scene now who are some of the good ones that you did interview already for the that are in the book or is it top secret no no um like you know bonnie ray carol Kay, um oh, cool. nancy wilson kathy valentine from the go-go's i, I tried to touch on the go-go's and the bangles and um some of the early, you know, women that I'd seen playing and then, you know, people like, there was some, a lot of bass players too. Yeah. Um, Felicia Collins from Who's that? Late Night. Felicia Collins from uh, the Late Night with David Letterman band. Oh, she okay, was with yeah. them forever. Right. And, yeah. But a lot of classical and rock and jazz and blues and just kind of all over the place. Right on. That's a cool project. Uh, that was a slow burner. Yeah, so, that's a slow burn. And then going forward, you're you're going to make another record soon. Like, do you have that on the in the books already, or is it just something that you're starting to think about? No, no, we have it in the books. As soon as we were supposed to be recording this month, but oh, uh, you know, as soon as we're all allowed to get back together, we'll yeah, probably and, next month, hopefully. Do you have all the material ready to go for it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we just want to we want to make a blues album. All right. Keep it right, you know. Keep it sort of shoot down the center. Will it be along the lines of um, what you did on Ice Queen or is it going to be different in some way? Conceptually? I think it's I think it's going to be pre more blues and more guitar centric. I okay. think with the Ice Queen, the Ice Queen was a lot of songs still. Yeah. yeah. Um you want to get so down to the We want to get back to what we're supposed to be doing here. Um you know, there's not a lot of people that do it anymore. So, um, and Mike's a great barometer for that. You know, he just, he was just like, you know, nobody's really doing this. We'd be surprised. Like back in the day, everybody was doing it and now nobody's doing it. Like (laughs) even the people we grew up with that were the stone blues players are not playing blues anymore. We're like, come on, man, you know how to do it. What are you doing playing funk or what are you doing playing, you know, exploring your songwriting? That's great. But just play some fucking blues. There's only a few. Exactly. There's only a few of us that were trained to do this, so let's fucking do it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. And will you will you pick some covers and stuff to do as well, or are you going to write all the material? Uh, I think we'll be doing some covers as well, yeah. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. 
Yeah. How about you? What you up to? I'm starting to work on a record this week, actually, with Gary Craig by sending oh, sending files back Gary. and forth. Yeah, he's awesome. So I've sent him some material, and he's going to add some drums to it. It's not the way that I like to work, but I figured since we're forced to work this way, I'm going to try it and see what happens. So I'm sending him some stuff to play on this week, and and I've got a bass player in Vancouver. <laughs> I'm going to send some stuff right. to. I don't know. God. We'll see what happens. It sounds crazy, but uh, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it in a weird way, just to see what happens. Yeah, this is a new. This could be a new normal for yeah. us. You know, we don't know what we're going back into. It's pretty frightening. Like as far as you know, like I had so many gigs this year and so much work you know, in the summer and the fall and it's just like gone. So that's horrifying, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know when it's gonna, like, what's your take on, like, when do you, are you rebooking stuff for the fall or spring or are you just like sitting tight? Well, we had, we had a bunch of stuff in May. We pushed it back to October and we're just crossing our fingers. Okay. Yeah. Everything tanked in May and June. Yeah. Uh, so we're just that, just make an album, I guess. And try to finish my book, right? I, so I have this time. So I'm like, okay, so you have no excuse now. So get on it. <laughs> yeah, so, that's what I'm ramping up the podcast too. And I'm, I'm, te- I'm teaching a little bit and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's different. Like I haven't taught for probably 20 years or something. But Are you teaching slides still? Yeah, whatever? yeah, yeah. Well, kind of whatever, you know, like people. Yeah. yeah but slide, mostly slide guitar and pedal, some cool. pedal steel and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Sue for talking to me today. This was great. Man, it was a great interview. I really, uh, it's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hope to see you out there, you know, when we're back around humans again. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Just stick it out. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. I had a blast talking to Sue. We will see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.